שיעור 191, How Tfilat Shabbat Illuminates the Meaning of Vayichulu and Vishamu, Rabbi David Foreman. What I'd like to explore with you today is um, the possibility that there exists in our possession perhaps the oldest known commentary on the verses that describe Shabbat to us, uh, and we have not even been aware of it. Long before Rashi, long before Unclos, probably even long before the Medrash, there was another commentary on these verses. And the crazy thing about it is that we actually recite the commentary every week without even knowing what it is. I want to suggest to you that the commentary is none other than the Tfilot Shabbat, which we daven every Friday night, every Shabbos day, morning, evening, morning, and afternoon. In the structure of Tfilah, you'll notice that the verses of Vayichulu and Vishamru appear. Vayichulu appear appears in the Friday night Tfilah. Vishamru appears in the Shabbos morning Tfilah. But right before those verses appears rabbinic text. Rabbinic text that we sort of, to pardon the pun, daven up. You just say, you know what I mean? You don't think too hard about it. Because if you think too hard about it, it's kind of head-scratching what in the world is going on in that rabbinic text. But I want to suggest to you that if you read that rabbinic text carefully, you'll find that the rabbis were doing something startling. They were doing two things at once. The first thing that they were doing was they were actually explaining to you how they saw the biblical text that follows. They were explaining, they were being mafarish, the words, the biblical words that follow, the oldest known commentary that we have on these words, our tefillot themselves. They were telling us how to understand Vayuhulu. They were telling us how to understand Vishamru. That's the first thing they were doing. They were engaging in an act of biblical exegesis. And I want to today try to uncover that exegesis with you, try to see what it is that they were trying to tell us. But the second thing that they were doing was they were including this in tefillah of all things. What a strange place to be mafarish text. Why would you do that? Make people daven this every week. Davening is the most personal, the most emotional thing we do. We're touching, we're, we're reaching out to God when we pray. And somehow the sages felt that they weren't just engaging in a dry technical analysis. They were actually revolutionizing our view of the Sabbath. They were telling us something important, something not just intellectually compelling about the Sabbath, but something spiritually compelling about the Sabbath, something emotionally compelling about the Sabbath, something that you had to keep in mind as you talk to God every week on the Sabbath. What is it that they were telling us about the Sabbath that they wanted us so desperately to know? These are the two things I want to try to figure out with you today. What is the exegesis that they're doing in the biblical text, and why does it matter so much to us, not just intellectually, but emotionally and spiritually as well? Figuring out what the rabbis had in mind is no easy task. When you look at try to understand what it is that they were saying in these words before, say, Vishamru, it, it's, it's almost impossible. If you pay attention to the words, think about it. If you were called upon to compose an introduction to the verses of Vishamru, which appear halfway through the book of Exodus, what kind of introduction would you have created? 
you know, you would have said, the Sabbath is a wonderful thing, you should observe it, and this is what it says, V'shamru b'nei Yisrael shabbat But that's not what the rabbi said. If you look in your source sheets, you kind of have it there, it's in Hebrew, but I'll translate. What you have is literally a Rube Goldberg-style machine. It's, it's like Mousetrap. You ever play Mousetrap? It's crazy, right? I mean, listen to what you have here. The, remember, this is all an introduction to V'shamur B'nei Yisrael Shabbos. Yismach Moshe B'matnat Chalko. Moses was so happy with his unique chalik in life, with his unique lot in life. Now stop. If I were to ask you what was Moses' unique lot in life, what would you say? What made Moses so unique? What made him so special? What did he do? Oh, the ten plagues. He was our teacher. He spoke to God. He taught us the entire Torah. He, he interceded with us with Pharaoh. There's a zillion things you could say about Moshe, but least of the things that you would imagine is what the sages actually say. Yismach Moshe b'matnat chelko. Moses was so happy with his unique lot in life, which was ki evan neman karatalo. He was called an evan neman, a faithful servant. I mean, you'd say, fine, he was called a faithful servant. It didn't make my top ten in the Price is Right survey. Right? Why is that even there? It's just a strange thing to say. But okay, that's what the rabbis say. Let's continue. Moses is so happy because he was called an Evan Neman. He also got a goodie bag. He actually got a, a crown that was given to him by none other by God. He got that crown when he was standing before God on Mount Sinai. But he got something else too. Because speaking of being at Mount Sinai, guess what he came down with? These tablets of stone. And by the way, speaking of the tablets of stone, guess what was in those Ten Commandments? One of those commandments actually had to do with the Sabbath. Oh, speaking of the Sabbath, elsewhere in the Torah, not in the Ten Commandments, but somewhere else, this is what it says about the Sabbath. That's your introduction to Vishamru. I don't know, but I think I could have done better. What, would, what did the sages have in mind? What, what were they trying to say with this mousetrap machine kind of introduction to Vishamro? What I want to do with you today, we'll see how far we can get, is start at the beginning and end with the end, as Julie Andrews once said, a very good place to start. We're going to start with Atakidashta, which is Friday night tefillah. We're going to try to figure that out first. We're then going to go to Shabbos morning, Yismach Moshe. And if we have enough time... That's what I started with. If we have enough time, we're going to try to get to Ata Echad, but no guarantees. Okay? So let's see how far we can go. Ata Kidashta, the Friday night prayer, serves as an introduction to Vayichulu, the verses in Genesis that first introduced the idea of the Sabbath to us. What I'd like you to just do is take a moment. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read Atakidashta for you, and we're going to play the following game. As I re- read the rabbinic text of Atakidashta, I want you to have your eye on the biblical text that it's introducing, which is Vayichulu. Okay? You can find them both on your source sheet. Vayichulu's down there somewhere. Okay? And here's what I want you to do. As I'm reading Atakidashta, I want you to kind of listen with half an ear to what I'm saying, and ask yourself, what is it that the rabbis are saying that are resonating with the words in the biblical text, right? So how are they, what, what, what is it that the rabbis are saying that you hear in Vayuhulu? Okay, you ready? Let's play our game. Here we go. You, God, you made holy the seventh day, Lishmecha, 
for your name's sake. Tachlit Sabbath is the culmination, the apex, the purpose of all of creation, of all of the creation of heavens and earth. And you blessed it more than all the other days. And you made it holy more than all other times. And thus it says in the Torah, the words of Aichulu from Genesis chapter 2. Okay, so as I read those words, what elements in Vayuhulu do you hear the rabbis picking up in? Yes. Okay, so one is Vayichal, which is actually the least obvious of them, so we'll come back to that in a moment. Give me something even more obvious than that. Vayivarech, right? One of the things it says in Vayichulu is that God blessed the day. Sages are talking about God blessing the day. What else is kind of obvious that they're picking up in other than also Vayikadesh? Right? It says that God made the day holy. The rabbis are talking about what it means that God made the day holy. Okay, good. It's also the case that they're picking up on the word Vayechal a little bit, right? Because Vayechal means to finish off, as in Vayechulu Hashemayimars, heavens and earth were finished off. Where do you see Vayechal, that verb, in what the sages are saying? The word tachlit, tachlit, actually is a, is a form of that verb vayichal. So they seem to be touching on this idea of vayichal or vayichulu, that things were finished. Okay, so those are the elements that the rabbis are talking about that resonate with the biblical text they're talking about. So it's fair to say that they are sort of relating to that biblical text, right? They're not just making up their own poem. They're talking about vayichulu. But now let's try to figure out what is it that they are saying about Vayichulu? And in order to do that, I'd like to, to go back to Atakidashta, that introduction. And as I read it again, I want you to focus on how what they are saying is different than what's in Vayichulu. In other words, if you were just reading Vayichulu on your own without the rabbi's interpretation, you wouldn't know certain things that the rabbis seem to be adding. They seem to be telling us more. They seem to be explaining. So what more are they telling us that isn't immediately obvious in the biblical text? Let's read it again. You made holy the seventh day for your name's sake. It's the very culmination, the very zenith, the very purpose of all of heaven and earth. And you blessed it from all the other days. And you made it holy from all the other times. And so it says in your Torah. What did they add that wasn't immediately obvious in Vayichulu? Okay, the first thing they add is the idea that Atakidashta et Yamashvi'i Lishmecha. Hold on, let me just get my notes here so I can see. So the first thing they said is that you made holy the seventh day for your name's sake. They added that, right? That's not there in the biblical text. What does it mean, right? And, and just to understand, here's why I think the rabbis are even saying that. Because even before we get to what the... Let's just put on hold for a second what I just told you. What are the rabbis had adding? Let me just sort of ask you this. You know, if you were just coming to the text of Vayuhulu for the first time, one of our problems is that we're not. We read it so often that we, we don't even pay attention to the words anymore. But imagine you never read Vayuhulu. 
You're reading it for the very first time. Right? What would be strange about the text? Right? There's some things that are kind of strange about the text, and one of them has to do with this notion of holiness. Think about the following thing. You've never heard Vayichulu anymore. I'm telling you Vayichulu for the very first time. You're a college student in a hundred college somewhere. You don't know anything, right? And I say, guess what happened, right? On the se- God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy. Talk to me. Do you have any problems? What in the world is that supposed to mean, right? I, what does it even mean to make a day holy, like a, and I said, well, what do you mean, what does it make? Uh, like, I just say this every Friday night, I'm offended. What do you mean, what do you mean? So the guy comes back and says, well, here's my problem. Like, a day isn't a thing, you know what I mean? Like, I, I can't, like, just what? He, like, waved puff, puff of magic smoke over it and said, now it's holy? Like, what, what does that even mean? I, I, I don't know what it means. A, it's not a thing. I, I can't make it holy as nothing. It's just some time. And B, what is holiness supposed to even mean? I don't get that concept. What did he do to the thing? Plus, he says, that's not the only thing I'll understand. What in the world does it mean that God blessed the day? So I say, well, what do you mean? What's wrong with God blessing the day? He says, like, look, if you bless me, I would get that, right? I'm a person. I'm someone. You could bless me. You could say, you should have nachas from the kids. You should be zelcha to marry off your daughters. You should have, uh, you know, you should, your children should grow up and be happy and be magdal. You know, you give, you know the, the whole thing. We get what a blessing is. How are you supposed to bless a day? What are you going to say? The day should be, what does the day need? What does the day want? What, how do you bless a day? I just don't understand what it means. Again, it's not a thing. What would it mean to even bless it? Just have no understanding of what it means. Sages come out of the, out of the clouds and say, okay, I get it. I'm going to explain it to you, okay? The first thing they say by way of explanation is, When you made holy the seventh day, the first thing you have to understand is, that means God made it holy for his name's sake, for himself. In other words, almost as if it's not about you, it's about him in some kind of crazy way, whatever that means. That's the first thing you got to know. The next thing you got to know about it if you want to understand this notion of blessing, and you want to understand this notion of sanctification, you have to know that berachto mikol hayamim. When you say that he blessed it, it means that he blessed it more than the other days. It's almost like there was a competition among the days, right? The days of the week, and the seventh day won in some strange kind of way. And the last thing you need to know is the kirashto mikol hazmanim. There's an element of kedusha of holiness that sets that's this time apart from other times, from the rest of time. It's, it's fundamentally set apart. It's, it's holy in some kind of way. That's what you have to know about holiness. So holiness means it's for God. Holiness means it's set apart from other times. And blessing means that it got blessed more than other days. Okay? That's the cryptic commentary which they're offering you in order to understand what in the world is going on with the Vayichulu. But the truth is, the sages are saying something more. There's an elephant in the room that they're saying that seems to have no connection, or almost no connection, to the biblical text. Something that just seems to be a flight of fancy. Just some kind of poetic musing that they have that doesn't seem to come from anywhere in the text. What is it that they're telling me in Atakidashta that's mind-blowingly original, that you just see nowhere, seemingly, seemingly in the words of Ayahulu? Tachlit maseh shamayim va'aretz. Where in the world are they getting this from? In other words, if I was here, and I was a certain kind of speaker, you know what I mean? And I was going to rely not on the 
on, on ideas, right? But I was just going to try to inspire you with my, you know, charisma or something, right? So here's what I'm going to do. So I'm going to yell at you, right? Because I'm going to intimidate you. And I could say something like, here's what you have to understand about the Sabbath, boys and girls. The Sabbath is the purpose of all of creation, right? And you'd walk out of here very inspired because I yelled at you, right? And the Sabbath is the purpose of all of creation. I guess it's probably true. He believes it, right? That's what he would say. But, like, how do I know it's true? Like, where does that come from? What does it even mean? And such a strange thing to say that the seventh day, it's just a day, it's just a day, is the purpose of all of creation, that's the purpose? Like, it's tachlet, ma'aser shemayimars, to say such a thing is mind-boggling. How do you get a period of time, which isn't even a thing, like, being the purpose of everything? It means... Animals weren't the purpose. People weren't the purpose. This day is the purpose of everything. But the sages believe that if you read Vayuhulu carefully, that's what Vayuhulu says. They actually got it from the words. Now our challenge is, what did they see in the words that convinced them that this was actually true? That you had to read the text this way. It wasn't an option. They were telling you there were problems in the text. If you understand the problems in the text, you'll understand how they were boxed into reading the text this way by the text itself. So what I want to do with you now is to go back into the biblical text, not the rabbinic text, and just clear our minds, read it as if you've never read it before, and now tell me what are the problems in the text. You're just a guy from Hunter College, you're a girl from Loyola, right? It's your first experience with Judaism, you're reading this text, what is weird about the text? Okay. Let's read it. Everything was done. The heavens and the earth and all of their hosts, it was all done. And then God finished on the seventh day the work that he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he made. And God blessed the seventh day. And he sanctified it. Why? Because on it, he rested from all of his malacha that he made. Okay, talk to me. What are the issues here? Why does God need to rest when he already finished Okay, so why would God need to rest, right? It just doesn't sound like the kind of thing you would need to do if you were an omnipotent being. Okay, that's right, because like how tired was I anyway? I can do anything, right? So that's one problem. Anything else strange? It seems pretty repetitive. Good. Talk to me. It's group therapy session. What's the, what's the repetition over here? Okay, good. So if I wanted to make this really concise, how would I do it? Listen carefully. You see this part about that he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he made? If you look carefully, that gets repeated twice. It does, okay? The Torah 
thrives on an economy of words, there's no reason for the repetition. Because the second time it comes, when it says, and God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy, why? Then we repeat the whole thing again. Because on this day he rested from everything that... But I knew that already, right? You told me that. So what's the concise way to say it? The first time you say it, right? Which is, Right? What could you then say, if you wanted to really be concise? Then you could just insert one word, and you could say, and therefore. And therefore... God blessed the day and made it holy. And you know, why did he bless the day and make it holy? You don't have to say the whole thing again. So it's repetitive. So the sages, I think, were bothered by that. It's repetitive. What else were they bothered by? Okay, that's true. But let's, let's get to another point. So, what, so that's repetition also? Okay, we're getting we're somewhere. Anybody else? I'll get back to that. What's the issue? So which did he do? Okay, you guys are saying the same thing. I'll get back to you in a minute. Um, let me just... Uh, a very simple Hunter College question. I'm just like, I'm seeing this text for the first time. I can't help myself. I'm just going to ask it to you, okay? Could you please explain to me why God blessed the day and made it holy? Like, forget even what it even means. I already don't understand what it means. I have no idea what it means that God made the day holy. I have no means to do what. But whatever it means. Why did he do that? Because he rested. And therefore? And so explain it to me. I want to know. I rest too. I don't make things holy when I rest. I don't bless things when I rest. I rested. Great. Wonderful. How does that explain anything? Why did he have to make it holy all of a sudden? God does lots of things. Why didn't he make it holy? Because he made man and made the sixth day holy. Because he made man. Why didn't he make the third day holy? Because he made vegetation. There's lots of things. Like, like if it said that, you wouldn't bat an eyelash. You'd say, oh, he made the sun and the moon and the stars on the fourth day. That's why he made it holy. So why is it that because he rested, he had to make it holy? What does that even mean? Right? It's like a Hunter College question. You never would think of it if you're from, right? But that's the, that's the truth. So... But it's a question, right? But the sages had that question, I think. They were bothered by these things. Okay, so you got all these questions. But the truth is, there's another very subtle question. I hate to say it because I'm embarrassed. I just realized it this morning. What I'm telling you, it wasn't even like this was supposed to be in the talk, okay? But I'm going to tell it to you. There's something at the end of this verse that doesn't make sense. The Adlasot also doesn't make sense, but that's another schmooze. We'll get to that some other time. Okay? But it's a very subtle thing, but it doesn't make sense. Here's how I translate it at the end of the verse. Why did God make the day holy? Now here's the way I translate it. Because on this day, he rested from everything, every, everything that he made. But boys and girls, I pulled the wool over your eyes. Because that's not what it means. It doesn't mean because on this day he rested. Read it in Hebrew, for those of you who know Hebrew, and tell me what it actually means. Let's read the Hebrew again. Translate it literally. That's correct. It does not mean that he blessed the day and made it holy because on it he rested. That's not how you say on it. Kivoshavat literally means because in it 
in it he rested. That's, I'm just saying that's what it means. That's what the words say. So I'm back in Hunter College and I say, I don't know what that means. I know what it means to rest on a day, right? I get that. You want to know when I rested? This is the date. I don't know what it means to rest in a day. How do you rest in? A day isn't a thing. You don't rest in it. It's almost like, what was it, a house that I rest in? It's weird, in it. And by the way, the first time around, remember we said it was repetitious? Because the Vayishbot appears earlier? Look at it the first time around. What does it say? The first time around it says... Vayishpot bayom hashvi'i, which would mean, and he rested on the seventh day. So now I'm totally confused. So which was it? Did he rest on the seventh day? Did he rest in the seventh day? What's the difference? So the first thing I want to suggest to you is that the rabbis noticed these things, and perhaps that's why the repetition had to be there. Because first, the first thing you have to understand conceptually is that he rested on... But somehow, as a result of that, an implication is that he rested in. What does it mean to rest in the day? Look at the beginning of your source sheets. The Ten Commandments. Shomaros Yom HaShabbos Lakacho. Keep the day holy. Sheshesh Yamim Tavod. Work for seven days. Right? And you should rest. Why? So that others can rest along with you. Why? Because you were a slave in Egypt. And God took you out from there. Those four elements that I just mentioned, you've heard them before. Listen carefully to the fourth element, the four elements. Shamor as Yom Shabbos Lakadsho, keeping, followed by Sheshes yamim ta'avod, working, for six days working, followed by laman yanuach, resting, yanuach avdachav amascha followed by vodiyotziacha shamalakachamisham, followed by God taking you out of an ordinary place to take you somewhere more special. There's a single verse elsewhere in Tanakh that has all four elements in the exact opposite order. What is that verse? It's the very next verse in your handouts. The verse is the verse that describes our coming into the Garden of Eden. Look at the verse. God took man and placed him in Eden in order to work it and to serve it. Do you see the correspondence? Start from the end and work backwards. What's the last thing that God did when he took us out and put us in Eden? What were we there for? La'avda, to work it. Lishamra, to keep it. Look at the Sabbath. How does the Sabbath begin? Vishamru, right? You should keep it. Now go backwards in the Eden verse. After Lishamra, what do you have right before that? Le'avda, in Eden, right? We were there to keep it, but also to work it. Going backwards. Go back to the Sabbath. What does this remind you of in the Sabbath? You should keep the Sabbath and Sheshes Yamim for six days. You should work. Do you understand? Now go back even further in the Eden verse. What does it say? Vayanicheyu began Eden. And he placed him in Eden. What does this remind you of in the Sabbath? Lamanyanuach. So that we should rest. Right? But resting somehow is now comparable to be placed in somewhere. Right? Placed in where? Placed in this special place. 
because God took you out of a special place. Like God took you out of a not-so-good place, right? Egypt, to bring you to a special place. Go back in the Eden verse. God took us out somewhere to bring us to this special place. Very strange. There are all these comparisons between the Sabbath and the Garden of Eden. Weird. Almost as if the Sabbath and the Garden of Eden are virgins of one another. The Garden of Eden was a place. It was somewhere you could be in. Where was God in the world? He was in the Garden of Eden. Was the Sabbath a place too? A place in time. Somewhere that God could be. He could rest in it. Even look at the way rest is used in these two verses. Laman Yanuach, so you could rest with Shabbos, compares to Vayani Cheyu Eden, to be placed inside somewhere. Almost as if resting has a double meaning. On the one hand, it's taking time off from work, but on the other hand, it's coming to rest inside somewhere. Here's what I think the sages were, the sages were getting to. To round out the problems that the sages saw, let's go back to the verses right before Sabbath in creation. I want to point out something strange to you. What happened on the fifth day? What happened on the sixth day? God blessed the Sabbath, right? If you would want to understand what it means that God blessed the Sabbath, what if I asked you this question? Did he bless anything else in creation? If he did, maybe that could hold some key to understanding what it means he blessed the Sabbath. Let's just look and see what does blessing mean in the context of creation. What else did God bless in creation? God blessed man. What did he say to man? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. Great. We have one point that we can use as a point of reference. God blessing man. Do we have a second point of reference? Was there any other blessing in creation? Yes. The fish got blessed, interestingly, right? You see that over here? I underlined it for you. Here's a fascinating thing. If I use those two points as reference points, guess what? The blessing's the same thing. Look how he blessed the fish. Pruvu umilu et Be fruitful and multiply and fill the water. Do you understand? And, 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 and by the way, it's, it's weird because only fish get blessed and only people get blessed and who doesn't get blessed? Animals, land animals, do not get blessed. Why? They're fruitful and multiply. Why can't they be blessed? Oh, no. For some reason, only fish, only people. This is another thing I think the sages saw. If you want to understand what blessing means, right, look at the way the Torah is using blessing. But here's the fascinating thing. In the two times that we see blessing, other than the Sabbath, the blessing is exactly the same. What are all the elements that are the same? Three elements. Pru, uruvu, umilu. Be fruitful and multiply and fill. The only difference between the fish and people is, what do you fill? What do the fish fill? They fill the waters. What do the people fill? They fill the land. So you can actually express blessing in the context of creation as an algebraic equation. Right? Let blessing equal, be fruitful and multiply and fill X when X equals... Your habitat, right? Fill your habitat. The habitat for fish is water, right? The habitat for people is land. Now I understand 
why animals didn't get blessed. How come God couldn't bless the animals? Because the only possibility of blessing is this blessing. That's what blessing means, okay? You can't bless animals that they should be fruitful and multiply and fill the land because you've given that to man, right? There was a competition. Man won out. Look at what the rabbis say about blessing. If you want to understand the Sabbath, you have to understand that there was a competition. A competition between days. And guess who won? The Sabbath. Just the same way people won over animals. Maybe the sages thought it was the same blessing. The same blessing? Crazy. But the Torah doesn't tell us it was the same blessing. The Torah just says he blessed it. But maybe that's what blessing always means. Maybe the reason why the Torah didn't tell you what the blessing means with Sabbath is because it wasn't any of your business. What do you mean it wasn't any of my business? Who is the Sabbath for? What do the rabbis say about it? You made this day holy for yourself. Strange. You know, the Torah is not actually a work of theology. We think it is. Somebody stops you on the plane and says, tell me, what does the Lord do all day? You're an Orthodox Jew. You should know. You read the Bible. You scan through the Bible while he gets, you know, goes to first class to the bathroom, and you're like, I feel like an idiot. I have no idea what God does all day. It doesn't say it over here. You know why? Because the Torah is not a book of theology. It doesn't talk about God in his tower, like the City of God by Augustine, or like Dante's Inferno, or any of that things. But there's one exception to that. One exception, one moment in time when the Torah does talk about God's experience as God without reference to human beings. It's the Sabbath. It's these verses. You made this whole day holy for yourself. Isn't it interesting that God never tells Adam and Eve about the Sabbath? They don't even know. You know because you're reading the Bible. They don't know. Why? Because God was just hanging out by himself on the Sabbath. This day was for him. You can't confuse God's Sabbath with our Sabbath. This is God's Sabbath this first time. This was just about him. Now you have to ask, well, why did he make it? Why was was it so important to him? The answer to that comes from another problem the sages had. And this is the last problem I think the sages had. Well, two more, but they go together. At the end of every day, what does it say? When do you know the day's over? And it was morning, and it was, it was evening, and it was morning, sixth day, right? You know it was over. Guess what, boys and girls? That's when you know a day is over. Always in creation, with one exception. There's one day that doesn't have a Vayihi Erev and a Vayihi Boker attached to it. And it was evening, and it was morning. What day is that? The seventh day. It never says, You've got to ask why. Why doesn't it say, A day is over when it says, What does that tell you, boys and girls? It was never over. That's crazy it was never over. But, 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 there's, but time went on, right? No. He made this day holy broke it off, separated it from the rest of time. There was an infinite day. And that infinite day had some sort of purpose. It was infinite for a reason. It never ended. Why did it never end? And exactly how do you know? And here's the last thing that the sages saw, I believe. 
They saw one of the most basic problems in text when you read the fifth day, the sixth day, and the seventh day together. The problem is we never read it together because we read it as part of Kiddush. When you read this as part of Kiddush, how do you begin? Everything reads fine. When does it not read fine? If you back up one verse, all you have to do is one verse. If you go one verse backwards, the whole thing falls apart. Let's go to the verse right before Vayera Vayivokar Yom Hashishi. And it was evening and it was morning, sixth day. It's the fifth day. Sorry, it's the sixth day. God creates animals, God creates man. God blesses man. Then look at the last verse. Vayar Elohim et kol asher asah v'hinei tov ma'od. And the Lord saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. Similar to other days, but different. How is it different? It was very good. On the other days, it's just good. But this day, it was very good. And there's one other difference. Vayar Elohim, what did God see on this day? At kol asher asa. He saw all that he had made. On previous days, what did God see? God saw what he made on that day. Here he saw everything that he made, and therefore it was very good. This explains why it was very good. What was very good? It's good each individual thing. What's very good? The totality, how it all works together. The sum is greater than the, than the, 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 the thing is greater than the sum of its parts. Great. What does this tell me then? It tells me what the very next verse says. Vayera vayivoker yom hashishi, that as the sixth day came to a close, vayichulu hashamayim va'aretz v'cholz va'am. The heavens and the earth and everything in it was all done. It was all finished. Let me ask you a question. When was it all finished? Tell me, based on what we just read, when was it finished? Answer, end of day six. That's what we just read, right? That's why, at the end of day six, God looks and sees. It's very good, because he's looking at everything, because it's all done. That's why it's very good. So the Torah comes out and explains it to me. If you want to understand, at the end of day six, everything was all done, which makes the very next verse almost impossible to read. Look at the next verse. Vayichal Elohim bayom hashvi'i melachto asher asa. God finished on the seventh day the work that he made. Could you explain that to me? Would someone like to explain that to me? Right? Do you understand the problem? I don't get it. You just spent like three verses telling me that when did God finish? The sixth day. Only to tell me in the very next verse that when did God finish? That God finished on the seventh day. So I, I completely don't get that. It's, it's a raging contradiction. There's just no way to read those verses. Enter the sages. They said, I'll teach you how to read those verses. They were forced into this explanation. There was no other way to read the verses. And out of it grew Atta Kidashta.
God finished on the seventh day the work that he made. Once again, the translation lies to you the way the sages understand it. The sages took one letter, a single letter, and they twisted it into a remarkable translation. Because it turns out that letter has two possible translations. A usual translation and a slightly less usual translation. The problem is we've been reading it according to its usual translation. But the sages say that the context of the verses forces you into the more unusual interpretation because the usual one doesn't work. What letter am I talking about? It's bait in the word bayom. How have we been translating that bait? Vayechal Elohim bayom hashvi'i. I've been translating that as and God rested, God finished on the seventh day. Bait means on. But bait doesn't have to mean on. There's another alternative translation for bet. What else could bet mean other than on? <laughs> it could mean through or with. That's what it could mean. What if you translated it that way? Here's what the verse would mean. You see, if it means on, then all I'm telling you is a date. But if it means through, I'm not just telling you a date. I'm telling you a mechanism. I'm explaining to you how it happened. What was the nature of God's finishing? How did he finish? Here's what the Torah wants to tell you. God saw everything he made on the sixth day, and it was very good. And and everything was finished. But it's not true to say everything was finished. What was finished? Shamayim, Aretz, Vaam. So let's get a little specific. What exactly was finished? The stuff of creation was finished. But here's the thing, the rabbi said, that wasn't everything. There's more to creation than stuff. Because after Vayichulu Hashamayim Varatz V'chotz V'am, after the heavens and the earth and all of their hosts, the stuff of creation was finished. God had one more thing in mind that he wanted to create. Vayichal Elohim Bayom God finished his malacha on the seventh day, Mlachto Asher You know how he finished it? You know what mechanism he finished it by? How did it, what, through what did he finish it? By creating one last thing. It wasn't actually part of the stuff of creation. It was part of the environment of creation. It was a day. It was a little sliver of time. God created the seventh day. And through creating the seventh day, this new thing, this aspect of the environment of creation, that was the crowning achievement. It really was. Tachlet It was the reason why all the stuff of creation was created. It was the apex, this thing. But why? What was so special about this thing? It turns out that creation has an environment. 
We always focus on the stuff of creation, but physics has taught us that creation has an environment, and that environment we call time and space. And Einstein discovered that time and space are things, it's stuff, it's part of creation. It is the environment in which everything else exists. It turns out that in the view of the sages, Time gets created. All the days get created. That's the way God works. He creates the environment for creation. You never actually see or pay attention to the fact that the days are getting created because on all other days, so much stuff gets created that you don't focus on the more subtle environment that's being created. What does it take for you to see that a piece of the environment is being created? A day in which... No stuff gets created. So all you see is the day, so it stands out. So God finished primal creation by bringing in one last primal day. A day that would have no attached to it. A day that's infinite. A day that never ends. Why? It's because of what he did. What did he do? The answer is nothing. That's why he did it. Because he wanted to do nothing. Well, what does that even mean? I need a whole day just to do nothing? What's the point of doing nothing? Doing nothing is the tachlit ma'aseh shamayim baratz. What does that mean? What was missing in God in the first six days? What was the problem with God in the first six days? God experienced a problem in the first six days, a problem that had to be answered. By the way, to some extent, it's the same problem that we experience in our six days of the week that the Sabbath answers. What is the problem? All of you who are Sabbath observers, why do you enjoy Shabbos so much? What is the problem that exists all the other days of the week that somehow Shabbos rectifies in your life? You feel disconnected, you feel out of focus, you feel like you're running around with a chicken without a head. You're looking at your phone, this one's calling you, that one's calling you. You don't know what's going and what's coming, you're running around, you don't feel present. You see, there's two aspects to existence. The more obvious of them is doing. We spend the whole week doing. God spent his whole week doing. He was creating, but here's the thing. That aspect of doing was not native to God. That's not how God fundamentally is. It's not how any of us fundamentally are. We do, but here's the problem with doing. There's another aspect to our existence. It's the opposite of doing. It's being. Being was missing. Here's the problem. There is a fundamental battle between doing and being. To the extent that you do, your being is compromised. Now, you've got to accomplish stuff in the world. I'm just warning you that when you do, your beingness is compromised. You're running around like a chicken without a head. It takes stopping to do in order to be. Later on about Shabbos, we will say about Shabbos that God was Shabbos vayinafash. Vayinafash is a strange word. You know what it means literally? He returned to his nefeshness. A nefesh is a soul, a sense of being. After Shabbos, he rested and returned to that sense of being. Lest this sound too hokey-pokey for you, right? A little bit too philosophical for you. The truth is mathematics is based upon it. Calculus is based upon it. 
How many of you guys took calculus in school? How many of you who took calculus in school understood the fundamental problem that calculus is designed to solve? Like 3% of you. So let me give you a math lesson. What was calculus designed to solve? Newton and Leibniz came up with it in the same thing. The answer is, it was designed to solve the problem of being in time. Time maximizes our ability to do. Time is a measurement of change, which means I'm always running and I'm always coming and I'm doing. But there's a problem with being in time. Let me explain it to you very simply with an analogy. You're going 110 miles in your speedster through a school zone, right? A policeman pulls you over. You see the red lights, right? The officer comes out, license and registration. But you try to pull a fast one. You say, officer, what did I do wrong? Excuse me, ma'am. You were going 110 miles an hour through a school zone. How do you know, officer, that I was going 110 miles an hour through a school zone? It says so right here in my radar gun. I clocked you. But officer, when exactly was I going 110 miles an hour through the school zone? Well, it says right here at 10.53 and 51 seconds, I clocked you at going 110 miles an hour through the school zone. Officer, with all due respect, that's impossible. Because at that particular point in time, at 10.53 and 51 seconds, at that particular point in time... I was stationary. Now, this will not get you out of the ticket. This will probably land you in jail, so don't try it. But it's true. And this is the problem that Newton and Leibniz were trying to solve with the calculus. Because if the officer says, well, yeah, that's true at 10.51.53 that you were stationary, but then, like, you were moving, okay? Officer, when was I moving? At what point in time was I moving? Do you understand the problem? At any given point in time, you weren't moving. These paradoxes go back to the beginning of Western philosophy. Zeno's paradoxes in Greece are all about these problems. Newton and Leibniz tried to solve them, but guess what? They didn't. The calculus doesn't solve the problem. All it does is work around the problem. It says, I can't figure out this puzzle of motion because the truth is when you're in motion, when you're doing, you're not being. Doing compromises being. That's the way it is. But there's some sort of magic. Somehow it happens. What does this mean, Lamaisa, in our lives? In spiritual life, it means that you're running around with, without a chill. You, you don't know what you're going or you're coming. Shabbos gives us our sense of being back. That wasn't just a problem for us. That was a problem for God. God needed to, to rest, to recover, to just be. And when he was being, he wanted to be with us to be able to be in relationship to the world that he created. That was Tachlet Maaseh Shemayim Varetz. And that's what God did. When Vayishbot Vayom But guess what, boys and girls? He didn't just do that. Vayivarech Elohim at Yom Oto. He blessed the day and he made it holy. The day had to change because God was being in the day. That fundamentally altered the day. What does Kedusha mean? Kedusha means holiness. What does holiness mean? Holiness is, oh my goodness, 10 minutes left. So holiness means, right? Holiness means that 
When, when does something become holy? When God is there. Do you understand? God is there in the day. How did that happen? Here's how it happened. If God resting means God being, right, then it's not just that God co- recovered his sense of being on that day. What else was this day? It wasn't just a day in which Vayishpot Bayom Hashvi'i, that he rested on the seventh day. No. He had to bless this day. He had to make it holy because the day has now radically changed. You know why? Because in it he rested. Remember those parallels between Eden and Sabbath? Why are they there? What was the Garden of Eden? It was God's place in this world. What was the Sabbath? It was also God's domicile in the world. It was where he was. When I come to rest, I am there. The environment is there for me. You made holy this day for yourself. It's where God is, not in space, but in time. Here's the thing about God. God created a world with an environment. The environment is space and time. But here's the lonely part of that. God doesn't exist in space and time. How do you know? Because he's the maker. The maker never exists in the environment that he makes. I always analogize this to a Monopoly game. Some of you have heard that analogy before, right? It's like imagine Little Hat and Little Shoe having this conversation as they're going around the board. So Little Hat says to Little Shoe. Um, It says, I see there on the side of the board, it says made by Parker Brothers. Could I just ask you, do you believe in Parker? <laughs> Little she says, I, I don't know what that means, right? Well, it says made by Parker Brothers. Do you believe with Parker? So Little Hat says, look, let me just tell you something. Okay, I've been here a long time, okay? I've been around this board a million times. I've seen everything. Tennessee Avenue, Park Place, Chance, free parking. Heck, I've even been to jail. You know what I mean? Every week I go around, I collect my 200. I ain't never seen Parker. I just have never seen Parker. I don't believe in Parker. What would you say to Little Hat? You're looking for Parker in all the wrong places, right? Parker's not going to be on the board. That's for us. Parker's off the board, right? He made the board, but the creator doesn't exist on the board, right? So the creator does not exist in space and time. But here's the problem. That's lonely, it's lonely for us, and it's lonely for him, because he made the world because he wanted to be with us. But there was this break between him and us. It's like in prison, where there's that glass, and you can't touch the prisoner because he's there, and you're here, and, and we're stuck in space and time, and he's out of space and time. So what did God say? There's going to be two places for me in your world. Two places at the edge of space and time. One of them is called the Garden of Eden. What a strange name for a garden. What does Aden mean? The word Aden, the only time it's ever used in Tanakh and Ecclesiastes, it means Asher Aden Lohaya. What does Aden mean? Not yet to be, the garden of not yetness. Gan Aden Mikedem, the Garden of Eden Mikedem. What does Mikedem mean besides the East? From before, the garden of not yetness, from before, the garden that somehow transcends space and time, a little garden at the edge of space, that would be one place that God could be, at the edge. Almost imagine time and space is a circle. Now imagine a tangent that just touches that circle, just at the edge. That's where the Garden of Eden is. At the tangent, God says, I can come there. 
I can come there to your world. I can be there and you can come be there. And we can be there together. That was God's place in space. But God says, I'm also going to make a summer home for myself in your world in time. That was the Sabbath. The Sabbath was God's place in time. And therefore, the day would be fundamentally transformed. The day had to last forever. It needed to be beyond time, a slice of time that somehow was elevated beyond time, that was different from the rest of time. The kidashto mikol hazmanim. And therefore, the Sabbath would never end. But it all, sorry, um, it would never end, right? But God had to bless the day too. Bless the day. What was the blessing he gave? The blessing that's none of our business. The blessing that we don't even hear. It was the same blessing he always gave in creation. What was the blessing he always gave in creation? Be fruitful and multiply and fill your environment. Well, for fish that means fill your environment, fill the waters. For people that means fill your environment, fill the land. Now here's a mind-bending question. If God blessed the Sabbath, and it was the same blessing, because that's the only available blessing. What would it mean to bless the Sabbath that way? It would mean that the Sabbath, too, fills its environment. What is its environment? Time. Do you get it? It never ends. All the other days of creation recede into past, but not the Sabbath day. It fills its environment. It's the only day that stays. If I ask you, where is God now in time? The answer is, he's in his Sabbath. Our time broke off from that time, right? He separated his time from our time. He separated his time from our time. So our time broke off and continued and continued. And we have day one and day two and day three and we have all these weeks. But in his time, he is in his Sabbath. But here's the thing about blessing. It doesn't just mean fill your environment. There's another part of blessing. The really mind-bending thing is that blessing always includes another element too. Pru or vu. Be fruitful and multiply. The fish got it. Humans got it. And one other thing was blessed. Sabbath. Here's the crazy thing. Was the Sabbath being blessed? Was God's Sabbath being blessed? The same way fish and humans were being blessed. With a child. Was there ever a child a child of God's Sabbath. What would that child look like? <coughs> the child was our Sabbath. There would be another Sabbath that would come in the world. A Sabbath that would resemble the parent, but would live in a different world. Literally birth, that's what birth is. Birth is when I come out of you to come into another world beyond you. There was a Sabbath that came, that was part of God's Sabbath, that emerged from God's Sabbath into another world, into our world. It was our Sabbath. The story, where is the story of that birth to be found? The story of Ayuhulu, as the sages have it, is the Friday night davening. That's the story of God's Sabbath. But what is the story of the birth? The answer is, Shabbos morning tefillah is the story. The answer is, the verses of Vishamru are, and that's what the sages are saying in those verses. 
I'm obligated to let you know that I'm supposed to stop in two minutes, okay? I'm going to continue a little bit longer, but again, if you've got to leave, I totally understand, no problems, okay? Let me just show you what's going on in the birth story. What did the sages see in the story of Vashamro? If you look at the verses of Vashamro, you find that the birth had to do with the actual giving of the Ten Commandments. How do you know? You know it from the rabbi's introduction. Remember that they say in that introduction, they say, that Moses came down the mountain with these two tablets and was written on them Shabbos. Somehow the sages' view of the Ten Commandments wasn't just that there were Ten Commandments. There was one commandment that was central to all of them. The Ten Commandments were fundamentally about the Sabbath according to the sages, and Moses is coming down the mountain with those tablets, I believe, was the moment that they identify as a birth kind of moment. But how? How is the Sabbath being birthed? How is it in the, in the womb of God? And that time is just a crazy thing to imagine. What could that possibly mean? But interestingly, if you actually look at the verses of Vishamru, the verses themselves, you'll find a fascinating thing. If you go in your source sheets to look at those verses, look at the verse right after Vishamru, Right after it says, right after it says, look at the very next words in Pasuk Yud Chet. God gave to Moses when he finished, by the way, look at that word, what does that remind you of? When God finished speaking to Moses and said, what's the next thing he did? He handed him He handed him the two tablets. That's exactly what the sages said in their introduction. They were reading these verses carefully. They were telling you what was happening. What was happening is he was coming down with those Ten Commandments, giving us Sabbath. It was the moment of birth. But why? Why was it a moment of birth? To understand that, you have to understand what was happening at the top of the mountain. I don't have much time with you, so let me give you a brief summary. You can see these verses. I'm going to go through this like a mile a minute, but you can see the verses in your source sheets afterwards to check my math and see what, I, see what I'm saying. Vishamru seems to come out of nowhere. If you're reading the Bible, if you're reading Exodus, you get to chapter 31, the verses of Vishamru, it just doesn't seem to fit. After it is the golden calf, before it are all these laws about the Mishkan, and then you have this little thing about the Sabbath. It just doesn't belong. The sages were bothered by that. What is Vishamru doing there? And here was their answer. If you look at the Revelation narrative, and I say, where is the Revelation narrative in the Torah? Where would you tell me it is? Come on, guys, where is it? You all know where it is. It's in Parshat Vayitro. It's in chapter 19 in the book of Exodus, right? That's when the Ten Commandments are given. The answer is that's only part of the story. If you look carefully at the Revelation narrative, it's a very long narrative. It actually has different parts. It begins in chapter 19. But chapter 19, if you actually read it, reads like a comedy sketch. It goes like this. Moses, God says, I want you to come up to the mountain. I got something to tell you. Moses goes to the top of the mountain. Guess what God says? Oh, by the way, I need to tell you something. The people... The people can't touch the mountain. Very dangerous mountain. They touch the mountain, they die. I need you to go all the way down the mountain and tell them that. Okay? Moses, I already told them that. You told me that at the bottom of the mountain already. They know. Can we just get on with the show? God, no. I'm telling you. Warn them again. Go down and then go up and we'll talk. 
So Moses goes all the way down the mountain to warn the people one more time. And before you know it, God's talking Ten Commandments. And he's stuck at the bottom of the mountain with the people. It didn't even get back up to the top. He was probably pretty annoyed. It's a really strange story. Why tell them, go down, go up? They, they already know. And besides, why kill anybody if they touch the mountain? You're God. You're happy. You're giving them the Torah. Why are you so mean that if somebody touches the mountain, they're going to die? You know what the answer is? It was revelation. Where was God coming from? Outside of time and space. He was coming onto this mountain. He was taking over the mountain. The mountain was going to be his place in the world. Do you understand? As he's taking over the mountain, what happens if you touch the mountain? Do you get it? The mountain is God's place. It's like God's embassy. Think of an embassy, the Ecuadorian embassy. You go in Manhattan, you think you're in Manhattan. You're not in Manhattan. Where are you? You're in Ecuador. This is a little piece of Ecuador in Manhattan. Looks like Manhattan. Same sidewalks, same traffic lights. It's Ecuador. That's the problem with the mountain. God says, this ain't part of space and time anymore. It's not part of your world. It's part of my world. It looks like it's part of your world. Feels like a mountain looks like a mountain, everything's just like a mountain, but guess what happens if you touch it? You disappear. disappear. You're outside of space and time. You can't live that way, so you're going to die. So because it's so dangerous, it's a stove that doesn't even look like it's hot, so you have to warn people over and over again, don't get too close. This is dangerous stuff. Okay, fine. So this is God's place. So what happens? He gives the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are over. God says, come closer. That's the end of Parsha Yitro. He comes closer. There's a few more commands. Then you get Ve'ela Mishpatim. And these are the Mishpatim that God gave at Mount Sinai. Gives all the laws of Mishpatim. You get to the end of Mishpatim. As you get to the end of Mishpatim, what do you hear? You hear the Revelation narrative continuing. God then says, come a little closer. Come up the mountain into the fog at the top of the mountain. And if you look at those verses, it says, Vayal Moshe. Moshe finally goes up into the mountain and it says, Vayishkon Kvod Hashem al Har Sinai. That God's presence ensconced itself on Mount Sinai. Yamim. And the cloud was there for six days. Vayikra al Moshe. Vayom Hashvi'i Mitocha Anan. And then God called out in the seventh day from the cloud. What does this remind you of, boys and girls? It sure sounds like Sabbath. But it doesn't just sound like Sabbath. Listen to this verb. Vayishkon kvod Hashem al-Har Sinai. And God's presence ensconced itself. Vayishkon. What verb does that remind you of? Mishkan, the tabernacle. It's the same word. And guess what the next things are in the Torah? We're at the end of Mishpatim. The very end of Mishpatim. You turn your page as Moses goes up to the mountain where God was Shochein after the six days on the seventh day. And what parsha are you in? Parsha Truman. What's God saying? Time for you to build a place for me. A place for me. Eden was the place for me. But that's the place that I made. You're banished from there. But guess what? If you ever make another place for me, if you make a place for me, I'll even lend you my Kruvim. I'll lend you my angels. The same angels that keep you out of the place that I made for myself will bring you into the place that you make for me. That's my place in space. But I also had a place in time. It was my Sabbath. So, but guess what? 
I'm going to tell you now about a whole bunch of things about the Mishkan. I'm going to tell you about the Mishkan for all of Parsha Truma, for all of Parsha Tetzava, for half of Parsha Kitisa. Then I'm going to tell you how Betzalel made the Mishkan in chapter 31. And when I'm good and done telling you about that, I'm going to tell you about all the Malacha that Betzalel did. I'm going to tell you about one more thing. Ach, et Shabtotai Tishmoru. You got to keep my Sabbaths. And then you have the words of the Shamru. The Shamru B'nai Yisrael at Shabbat. La'asot at Shabbat. By observing the Sabbath, by doing nothing, paradox of paradoxes. The Shamru B'nai Yisrael at Shabbat. La'asot et Shabbat. You know how you make the Sabbath? By doing nothing. Same way I made it, God says. When you make my place in space, how do you make it? By doing malacha. Same thing I did when I made the world for you. You do work. That's how you make a place in space for me. How do you make my place in time? Ach et shavtotai tishmoru. On the Sabbath, don't do malacha. Keep the Sabbath. Don't do anything. La'asot et shabbat To make it. That's how you make it. You're going to make the Sabbath your place in time for me, the same way I do. And here is Moses on Mount Sinai. And now let's read the commentary of the rabbis. And with this, I'll let you go. I unfortunately won't get to Atta Echa today, which is a shame because it's a lot of fun. But we'll just get to Yismach Moshe. Yismach Moshe, the Matnat Chalko. Moses on the mountain, experiencing what he experienced, was so happy, so happy. What was he so happy about? The Matnat Chalka, with his unique ability, he was the only one who could do what was happening. What was that? Ki Eved Ne'eman Karatolo. He was called a faithful servant. The sages are quoting from somewhere in the Torah. Where does it say in the Torah that Moshe was an Eved Ne'eman? Where are they quoting from? Parshat Balotcha. What story? The story of Miriam. Remember? Miriam and Aaron are talking about Moshe. They're saying, how come he's so special? How come he has to be so different? God comes out of the clouds and says, yes, it's true your prophet's the same way Moses is a prophet, but your prophecy is different. You don't experience, you experience God in a dream, in a vision. It's not the same. Lo chain avdi Moshe. It's not that way with my servant Moshe. Bechol beiti, in all of my house, Naaman who, he is faithful. Moses is a faithful servant. Pe'el pe'adaberbo. I will speak to him directly. Bamare velobechidot. Directly with no riddles. It's a direct connection. He's in my house. He's a faithful servant. He's humble. If you ever watch The West Wing, who's the guy who gets to spend time with the president? It's Charlie, the humble servant. The guy who's not in it for his own ego. That's Moses, the most humble guy in the world. Not in it for himself. He's just there with God. And he has access like no one else is. The mountain is God's place. And Moses survives. He's the one person who can survive in that place. Communing directly with God. And what was his emotional experience? Yismach Moshe v'matnat chalko. He was so thrilled. It was a one-on-one conversation with God. Direct. He was just there. 
Ki even neman karatalo, klil tiferet baroshanatatalo. He even got a crown. What was the crown? Remember when he comes down, he has that mask. What's the mask there for? Because he was changed. When you talk to God, you get changed. When you're direct, he was shining. People were horrified. They couldn't understand what it was all about. His being was changed because he was there with God. And so what was the evidence that he was there for God? This mask was that evidence. It was like his crown. When he was standing in front of there in Mount Sinai. And he was so thrilled because he was the only one who could be in God's place, who could be in God's time. It led to the golden calf. The people thought he was late. He was up there for 40 days and 40 nights without food. They thought he died. Isn't it strange? 40 days and 40 nights without food. And it's not even a miracle. Not even such a big deal. Why not? Because where was he? How could he survive for 40 days and 40 nights without food? Answer is, where was he? Outside of time. It's only 40 days and 40 days from the pers- for the perspective of the people on the ground. For Moses, it's all happening in an instant. It's beyond time. You don't need to eat. I just ate lunch, right? So he, there he is, and, he, and he's experiencing this. And, Mo- and, and the people, by the way, thought he was late he coming down the mountain. You know what the word for late is? The very next words, after these words of the Sabbath, Vayar Ha'am, the people saw, Ki Voshesh Moshe, Moses was late coming down the mountain. The Voshesh is a very strange word for late, wouldn't you think? But take away the vowels. And what does Beit Shin Shin seem to signify? Vayar Ha'am, the people saw, Ki Voshesh. They made a fundamental mistake about Moses. Where did they think he was? In six, where was Moses? He was in seven. They thought he was late. They're looking at it from their perspective. It's not true. He was in seven, the timeless world. And he thinks that this world is just for him and God, this kind of connection. But then God says, Bubala, I got to tell you something. It's not just for you and me. This is the most spiritual experience you can imagine. I'm now going to give you the most physical thing you can imagine. Two hard, cold stone tablets. But on them is written something. The Sabbath is written on them. Out of this world, out of my world, this world beyond space and time, I'm giving you something. I'm giving you the ability to make Sabbath the same way I did. Vishamru B'nai Yisrael HaTashabbat. You too can make the Sabbath. How? By doing nothing the same way I do. The way you build in space is through Malacha. The way you build in time is by staying away from Malacha. That's how you build a space for being. You too are going to have the space. And when you create a space in your time, where am I? I am in my seventh day, in my timeless seventh day, at the tangent to the curve of space and time. And who are you? You're in space, going around every seven days. But once you sanctify this seventh day by doing nothing, guess what will happen? Every seven days, our seventh days will meet, mine and yours. And it's almost as if this portal opens up between them. And once again, we can spend time together at the tangent to the curve of creation, 
You'll be in your world in time, in your seventh day. I'll be in my world at the edge of seventh day. And just as Moshe has experienced this happiness, this delirious happiness of being together with God in the same environment, of spending time with God, the taflit shamayim varetz, the very purpose of everything, to be able to just rest and spend time with God, you will be able to do that. We'll both be able to do it together because the Sabbath had a child. There's a lot more. My time is up. I wish you a good Shabbos.